Welcome to Cato Audio for June 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Ted Galen Carpenter details some of the many failures of NATO. Author Dembisa Moyo provides a uniquely African take on the failure of government-to-government aid. Glenn Greenwald explains what he discovered after Portugal decriminalized most drugs. Milton Friedman's grandson brings a new idea to challenge existing governments. Cato's Christopher Preble explains how America's military dominance actually puts us more at risk. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. We are talking about the past, present, and future of financial services regulation. I'm joined by Peter Van Dorn, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and editor of Regulation Magazine. I'm also talking to Mark Calabria, director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute. Gentlemen, welcome. I want to start with something here. This is from President Obama. He was on a talk show. It was actually on the Jay Leno program in March. And uh, talking about financial services, financial products, he said this, when you buy a toaster, if it explodes in your face, there's a law that says your toasters need to be safe. When you get a credit card or you get a mortgage, there's no law on the books that says if that it explodes in your face financially, somehow you're going to be protected. So the question is, and I think there's a broader question here as well, about financial products, financial services, the range of options that people have at their disposal, and if there are some options that the financial services industry can create that just simply shouldn't exist. What do you think about that? Well, let me take a couple of different pieces of that. And fundamentally, he is asking the question of, you know, is it the product or the person that has gotten us here? And the president's narrative of, you know, these bad products that have blown up on people that have caused the subprime mortgage crisis or the mortgage crisis in general or the credit card crisis, you know, really is a, a question of the product itself. I would take some issue with his characterization of there are no laws to protect you. We, in fact, have a multitude of laws, starting with the Truth in Lending Act and a variety of others. There's probably more disclosure on any one financial product you might buy than any other product you might buy. Uh, But the question is, these products are different for different people. It might make sense for you to get a 30-year mortgage in one circumstance. It might make sense if you're moving next year for you to get an arm that starts at a low teaser rate. So the thing is, is that these products might make sense for different people. And you also need to fundamentally look at, if you look at what's the primary drivers behind bankruptcy, what's the primary driver behind credit card default, what's the primary driver behind mortgage default, it's not the product. It's what happens in someone's life. For instance, the number one cause is a job loss. No perfect mortgage is ever going to protect you from losing your job. The other reasons are healthcare expenses. The other reasons are also divorce. So it's really life event triggers that push people into financial difficulties rather than the argument that somehow I got a floating arm rate and it exploded on me and therefore I'm in trouble. That's almost never the case. And that said, one always has to remember as well that a financial contract is a contract. So to the extent that there's fraud, that's impossible, it's unconscionable, all of those things you know, can be redressed and we do have redress there. Peter Van Doren? I can shed some light on at least whether or not adjustable rate mortgages were in fact responsible for the high rate of foreclosure that we've seen lately. According to data that I've looked at from 1999 to 2007, the overwhelming majority of foreclosures and defaults on loans 
arose not because the teaser rates of that low initial teaser rates then went up and then somehow took too much money and therefore people didn't pay on them, but rather it was decreasing property values that that arose. And so a lot of these defaults have taken place even before the rates reset. And so the hypothesis that the financial product or the reset was causally related to foreclosure doesn't seem to be supported by the data. Mark? And we do tend to see that work with a multitude of things. It tends to be both that you're underwater in your home and that you have negative equity, and then you have a life event trigger. Now, often if you lose your job, you can borrow and you have equity in your home, you might borrow against it. Or if you have unexpected medical bills, you might borrow against the equity. But when you don't have equity, you can't pull that out as a cushion. And that's why you tend to see the trigger. I think a great example is if you look at the uh, real estate housing bust we saw the late 80s, early 90s in New England, which is severe as about anything we're seeing today, but on a more regional scale, only 6% of those households who had underwater mortgages actually walked away from them. So the vast majority of people will try anything they can do to stay in their home, and it's really not until there's a life event that pushes them into that situation that they'll walk away. Well, what about this idea that not enough people in the financial system had uh, skin in the game, and perhaps we need to make some changes to force a lot of the key players here to make sure that these transactions move along, that these loans are repaid, and that uh, they have some skin in the game themselves. Peter Van Doren? I think the history of booms and busts in financial markets is that because we are people and because we have memories that are short-term or not not long-term and the few people that have been around the Depression are not no longer active in financial markets, each generation has to learn that as booms progress and go on and on and on, people take on more risks and get more secure in what they do. And then, as my colleague Jagadish Gokhale and I are saying lately, everything works until it doesn't. That is, each aspect of this boom that we had was part of a mutually reinforcing macroeconomic equilibrium. And then some exogenous shock, he and I think it's high oil prices that then cause demand to fall for houses that are 80 miles from wherever in the California Inland Empire. But something causes of demand for that thing to drop, and then there's a mutually reinforcing decline in prices, which eventually reverses itself. And so you're saying now, can we set up a system such that 50 years from now, everyone will remember what we went through and never, in effect, take on too much leverage ever again? And the answer is no. I don't know of any system of institutions that can do that because... All of us look around in our own lives. I know my adult financial life has been during basically economic good times, except for when I was in graduate school in the 70s, which was not a good time. And after 25 years of adult financial success, you sort of take on more risk. Luckily, I did not, but it's extremely, I don't think it's possible to develop institutions that when everyone else is enjoying the boom, you're you're supposed to be in the way saying, you can't have that product because it would be too risky because 80 years ago, my grandparents told me that it all fell apart. Mark Calabria? I think the answer to to not enough skin in the game is yes and no. And it really depends on the parties involved. Our government, whether it was through FHA, the Federal Housing Administration, or through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, really pioneered the use of low to no down payment loans. Even today in FHA, you can get a mortgage with only 3.5% percent down. In six months, if you get that mortgage a day in California, you're already underwater. So I would note that 
it really has been the government that has sort of taken the lead in terms of trying to get people into homes with no equity. And I certainly think in terms of the government's reaction, they need to go back and look and decide if the taxpayer is going to stand behind a loan, what is a reasonable amount of equity for the borrower to have in it? I think it's a very important question. In terms of those lenders out there who didn't have government backing, who offered lots of no down payment loans to subprime lawyers, guess what? They're not here anymore. And that's what happens in the marketplace. If you go out and you push the envelope, you should be allowed to fail and you do. What has been the market response to the collapse in housing? Well, uh, for starters, let's take the mortgage part of it. Those products aren't available anymore except via the government. Nobody is offering you a 228, you know, zero down or forget it. Even more, the products out there over the years where you could have 105 or 110 percent loan to value from the beginning. The market has already said these products are not sustainable and pulled away. That's on the mortgage side. In terms of the housing side, we're having what we should have, which is a readjustment in prices back to fundamentals. And this is really a very positive thing for people who were responsible and sat out. There are a lot of people who decided not to take advantage of the market and get in, and they were able to buy a home now, and you're seeing a lot of that, and I think it's a very positive development. Within the halls of the Cato Institute, I hear a couple of, of statements. One of those is that, and I'll put it mildly, the public ends up eating all systemic risk. Could you talk about that a little bit, Peter? I guess I'm the one who says that, which is, it's not that I'm saying it in a normative libertarian sense that I'm glad that's the case. I'm just saying as a positive statement, as an economist, I think that in, ends up what's being true. I'll give you an obscure example about a proposal, which is economists at the University of Chicago have proposed something called time-varying capital standards for banks. Um, so in other words, out of crises, we will have pressure for more capital in banks than we have. And after every crisis, there is this pressure. So we could keep going and we could say, let's have 20% capital. Let's be even more safe than the Swiss were. So all banks have to have 20% capital. Well, most of the time, that's a waste. That's a 20% tax on all the deposits that are in banks, right? And then banks will chafe and there'll be arbitrage around that and blah, blah, blah. So economists have said, well, what you really need is a lot of capital that comes in during times like this and not and much less capital during boom times. But in fact, we have the opposite, which you have too much capital in banks during booms and not enough capital during times like this. So they've called for catastrophe bonds. Catastrophe bonds are dead instruments where you give the bank capital. It pays you all the time unless the macroeconomic indicators exceed some contractually specified limits that so much unemployment, so much loss of GDP or whatever, in which case you lose your money, you don't get any more interest, and the money becomes the bank's capital. So in other words, this right now all these catastrophe bondholders would have money um, going into the banking system, which is exactly what we need. Jagadish and I have, though, have been saying, well, okay, so you have these catastrophe bonds. What would the monies be invested in in the meantime? And the answer is something safe. Well, what's safe? And that's treasury. So guess what catastrophe bonds would do? They would make government consumption much easier. So in other words, even a Chicago-certified rational time-varying capital standard would, in effect, augment government consumption Jagadish's work with Ken Smatters has, has talked about how the 83 Social Security tax increase, which got invested in treasuries, has in effect been invested in government consumption. And so catastrophe bonds would be basically the same thing.
Mark Clambria? Well, I think there's lots of good angles with that. And ultimately, the question is going to be if you did have this sort of risk offset to a bond market, because lots of people for, have, for instance, looked at this in terms of weather patterns and catastrophic risk there, which is really where a lot of the ideals have grown out of. And it fundamentally always comes back to the point that, well, I don't like the insurance premiums I have to pay for my beachfront home in Florida. So I'm going to call up my congressman and senator and ask for some sort of subsidy. And I think you would see the same thing ultimately happen in a catastrophe bond type situation for financial institutions. You know, for instance, most people are not aware that there actually is a market, private market for deposit insurance above the existing limits, but it's awfully expensive. And there's probably a reason that it's awfully expensive. It's because it's kind of risky. And so ultimately, you know, the question of whether we all have systemic risk or whether we can get rid of as a society and government the too big to fail problem. Those things are fundamentally non-economic problems. They're fundamentally political problems and political questions. And if you, as long as you have a regulator, whether it's the Federal Reserve and using its 13-3 abilities to go buy whatever they want, or you have a uh, TARP sort of thing. And you know it's interesting that the Treasury Secretary Geithner has proposed a permanent type TARP. So as long as you have a situation where a big pot of money is lying around and you have politicians unable to use it, they will inevitably at some point hand it out, guaranteed. And even in a case where uh, banks are eager to pay that back, you and I have discussed, uh, there's no guarantee that that money doesn't go right back into the program. Exactly. You know, and once you're in and once it gets rolled back in, and we've seen this with a variety of programs. Every time the federal government has gotten involved in an insurance thing, whether it's mortgage insurance, whether it's flood insurance, whether it's crop insurance, almost all the times where there's been those programs have run surpluses, and, and I guess I should mention the granddaddy of them all, uh, Social Security insurance. You know, we take the positive proceeds, we spend it on government spending, and then when the debts come due, the money's not there. I would tell you this way, if the federal government was regulated as an insurance company by any of our state, even New York State Insurance Commissioner, they would have been shut down a long time ago. Homeowners, banks, the entire financial services industry has witnessed something that hasn't happened for a very, very, very long time. What is the appropriate government response given that all of these groups of people, individuals included, don't tend to make adjustments until they see something that they haven't seen for a very long time, which is a sharp downturn in housing prices that, uh, well, the conventional wisdom was just about to the point where, oh, no, housing prices don't go down. What is the appropriate government response here? Well, let me, let me be clear. I think, you know, whether it's businesses or whether it's households will almost always adjust to the level of bailout which they will expect coming. If you guarantee that you will solve somebody from a certain risk, they will almost always take up to that amount of risk themselves. So to the extent that people did not foresee it, I mean, I would note that once you actually started having indexes and there was an ABX index that was established in 2006 that allowed you to trade on subprime loans and Case Shiller also started up a futures market on housing prices, once you really started having to have aggregations of information about the housing market, people started shorting the housing market like crazy. They were like, this is unsustainable. Uh, and even that, you know, we can all go back and remember our dinner parties in 2004, 2005, and we'd talk about how much we paid for our house and how much our neighbor paid. And all of us, in our hearts, we knew this wasn't going to last. So it was always a question of when is this going to turn? I think we do have to remember that this is not the first housing market we've down to we've had. It's not the first financial crisis we have. Our country seems to have a financial crisis every 10 to 15 years, and about 9 out of 10 of those, real estate's at the core of it. So there's nothing new there. 
it really is a point of do we want to actually take the hard things and make the right choices? Peter Van Doren? I guess I'll reiterate what I said, which is that there'll be calls for designing institutions that are omniscient, can see these things, can stop them in real time, and make us behave. I don't think that's possible. I have 10, 15 quotes from leading economists all the way through 2007 saying these housing prices are a little dicey, but we think with 95% confidence they're consistent with fundamentals and this is all possible. So now everyone says, you know, we knew this couldn't last. I mean, lots of smart people on all sides of the economics discipline wrote papers in 2004, 5, 6, and 7 that said, with the exception of Schiller, that said, yeah, this something's going on, but it, we can't reject with 95% confidence that these data are consistent with fundamentals. And so I don't think there are any answers, and I think we will go through this again. I think right now there, there'll be learning, and then we'll forget, and then we'll do something, not this all over again, we'll do something different. I tend to be very risk-averse and keep a lot of money in cash, and that's what I would uh, <laughs> advise people to deal with. I have, I have high capital standards for myself. Mark Calabria? I, by contrast, am putting all of my cash into canned foods and shotgun shells. I believe those will be the only currencies that matter going forward. Um, but that said, I agree with a lot of what Peter just said, but some I would parse out. I do think, once again, we've had financial crises with pretty good regularity in this country. And we continue to have real estate, whether it's commercial or residential, sort of be at the heart of those. There is one point he made that I do want to parse out, which is almost every bubble that ever happens starts out based on something fundamental and something that makes sense. I mean, clearly, we all look back at the dot-com bubble. And, you know, we look at the frenzy of that, but we still thought, you know, the internet has changed our lives. There was something to that. It wasn't complete lunacy. It was only half lunacy. And it's the same thing with the housing market. You know, my guesstimate, my back of the envelopes are, you know, we really didn't change from a fundamental housing upswing to a bubble until probably about 2002, 2003. And, you know, after that, it started to get frenzied. So there is a point, always very difficult looking in the high mirror saying, when is it change from an increase driven by fundamentals to a bubble? That said, you know, I think we have consistently seen over leveraged real estate investments made by financial institutions that have taxpayer backing get in the trouble repeatedly. You know, this is the SNL crisis all over again. Instead of thousands of SNLs, we created two, Freddie and Fannie. And they came back and blew up on us. And basically, the same thing that did in Bear Stearns, maturity mismatch, which is you funded long-term assets, mortgages, mortgage-backed securities with very short-term paper. That was the same thing the SNLs were doing. So consistently, that's a theme that we never really address. But the reality is, if you want to make financial institutions hold long-term assets and long-term liabilities and match those, you reduce their ability to play off the yield curve. You reduce their ability to make a lot of money. And this, once again, is my, my point. The questions here are really fundamentally political ones. I mean, are we willing to have a structure that, you know, does not allow bankers to make a whole lot of money in nine years out of 10, and then the 10th year stick it to the taxpayer to pick it up? You know, that's the system we have today. All right. Gentlemen, we'll have to leave it there then. Mark Calabria, Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute, and Peter Van Doren, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute and Editor of Regulation Magazine. You can, of course, subscribe to Regulation Magazine at our website, cato.org.
Western governments have a vested interest in keeping aid flowing into African nations, and leaders in African governments have incentives to keep it flowing. But those incentives don't lead to self-sustaining development in Africa, and aid, says author Dembisa Moyo, has perverted what should be a rational approach to spurring development. She spoke about her book, Dead Aid, at the Cato Institute in April. What I've done is actually I came up with, uh, using David Letterman's style, the top 10 reasons why aid doesn't work. But I'm not going to be able to go through all of them. But let me just give you a bit of flavor, starting off with the most obvious one, which is corruption. I actually don't want to spend much time on this because it's very, very obvious and logical. The fact that a lot of the aid that goes to Africa comes into Africa with weak or no conditionalities means that it's uh, in the Economics parlance, you'd say that, that there would not be any rent-seeking without a rent. It means that aid provides a rent that governments have in the past stolen, but also it's, it's not something from the past in Africans' history. It's happening today. The former president of Zambia, as we speak, is embroiled in a corruption scandal, President Chiluba, having stolen millions of dollars, and, uh, which was diverted funds from the HIPIC program, but also from other aid interventions. Just six weeks ago, former president of Malawi charged with stealing as much as $12 million, again, from aid. I wish the corruption story was something of the past. It's not. And uh, unfortunately, given the incentive structure of the aid industry, the fact that donors are incentivized to give money to Africa, because obviously they have a lot of vested interests, a lot of Westerners who work in the aid industry, there are votes that could be lost If tomorrow, for example, President Obama stood up and said, we're not giving aid anymore, he could lose a broad set of the constituents. But not only are there bad incentives coming from the donor community, but also there are incentives for African governments to take more money. Bureaucracy, inflation, debt burdens, these are all artifacts of the aid model, very well documented. Aid is not the only source of these type of problems. But um, again, in the economics literature, it's widely shown that there are linkages between dumping large, vast sums of money into small economies and what that implies for things like inflation and also the export sector. The problem with bureaucracy, if I may spend a bit of time on this, is that if you think about the American slogan, no taxation without representation, we are now in in a very low equilibrium where African governments need not live or die by African taxes. So that means that they actually have disenfranchised Africans. They're not necessarily interested or acting on behalf of Africans. They spend much more time courting donors, listening to NGOs, than listening to their own people. The ensuing bureaucracies, they're creaking and they're laden with bureaucracy to the point that many of the entrepreneurs in Africa struggle to actually start their businesses. And the World Bank, again, has written extensively about things like doing business in Africa, how difficult it is. There are some countries it takes two years to get a business license and an inordinate number of processes. So um, you, one would think that if a government's livelihood and its mere existence depended on the private sector as it does in many countries such as the United States, the government would actually care to see the private sector develop. We see trade programs. Somebody I was just talking today at the IMF about the fact that Africa's trade share of uh, global trade is trending downwards. It's now 2%. It was 4% a few years ago. Very illustrative, again, of the fact that rather than encourage trade on the African continent, 
governments aren't bothered to to try and make the environment more conducive for foreign direct investment. They'd rather, and actually they do, rely much more heavily on uh, foreign aid. In the book, I talk about political vulnerability of an aid model. It seems to me no surprise that in the past five months, we've had four coups in Africa, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Mauritania, and just a couple of weeks ago, Madagascar. It also seems no surprise to me that in the 1990s, there were more civil wars in Africa than the rest of the world combined. The state is the main source of capital in these countries, and so these tend to be wars of capture. And yes, there are other wars and other motivations, but by and large, there seems to me to be a clear rationale for the type of uh, political instability that we see that permeates the continent. In 2001, Portugal began a remarkable policy experiment, decriminalizing all drugs, including cocaine and heroin. Far from disastrous, there is now widespread consensus in Portugal that decriminalization has been a success. Author Glenn Greenwald has written a new Cato paper on Portugal's dramatic experiment. He discussed his findings at a Cato policy forum in April. I think the key to changing how drug debate takes place, drug policy debate takes place, is to refocus the question so that it ends up being entirely an empirical or pragmatic issue. There are obviously people who advocate legalization on ideological or libertarian grounds, namely the belief that the state has no right to regulate, let alone criminalize, the decisions that adult citizens make about what substances they choose to use and ingest and and put into their own body. And if you believe in that ideological principle, it doesn't much matter what the pragmatic outcome of legalization will be. You just believe that drug laws that criminalize usage are inherently illegitimate, and you're likely already an opponent of the criminalization framework. Likewise, if that there is something inherently immoral about drug usage and that it's the responsibility of the state to maintain the stigma against it and for us to come together and collectively declare through the use of our criminal laws or the abuse of our criminal laws this moral judgment that drug usage is wrong. And regardless of the outcome of that policy, it's vital that we maintain that moral decree as a society. It also doesn't much matter what the pragmatic outcome of policy changes will be because then it becomes a moral question and not an empirical one. But I think largely the debate is driven by assumptions empirically about what is likely to happen if we decriminalize drugs or loosen our criminalization approach. And central to the debate has been this extremely unexamined assumption that if you loosen criminalization laws, let alone decriminalize or legalize, that what is going to happen inevitably is that there will be a massive explosion of drug usage and that drugs will start to play a much greater role in every aspect of our society. And what that assumption does is it means that any time there's a discussion of anything having to do with drugs that's negative in any way, even if the negativity is produced not by drug usage but by prohibition, any negative consequences at all that have anything to do with drugs immediately gets translated into our public discourse as something that bolsters the need to keep drugs criminalized because if we decriminalize, there'll be more drugs. 
And if there are more drugs, there will be more problems. So you look, for example, at what's happening in Mexico in the southern border of the United States, the extreme violence that's taking place as a result not of drug use but of prohibition policies. In the public mind, those problems get linked just vaguely to drugs and with the assumption embedded into place that decriminalization will lead to more drugs, automatically in the public mind, what is occurring in Mexico is a further reason to bolster and maintain our criminalization scheme. And so to me, the central question in terms of having an impact on the drug policy debate is not the ideological issues of whether there's legitimacy to criminalizing drug use. That's important, and and I have my own views on that. But that seems to be firmly embedded into place. And it's not the moral issue. Is drug usage inherently wrong, or do we want to encourage or discourage drug use? Because that, too, is a fairly static question. The question that I think matters is, is this assumption accurate about what will occur if there's decriminalization, namely, will there be this massive explosion of drug usage on the part of our youth and our adult population, or is that a myth? And I think the only way to move past the speculative realm and to answer that in an adult and serious fashion is to look at the results of decriminalization that have existed in the real world and that exist now, and and one finds that in Portugal. And that's why, to me, the idea of going there and, and actually finding out what has been, what have been the actual results was such a compelling project. Now, what has happened in Portugal since decriminalization? If you look at figure 15 on page 21, and this is actually compiled both by the Portuguese agency and by the principal European drug monitoring agency, which also by coincidence is based in, in Lisbon, what this does is it compares prevalence rates from many EU states for marijuana for the ages of 15 to 64. And you can see that Portugal, as compared to all of these states with harsh criminalization schemes, has the lowest prevalence rate for marijuana as compared to any of those other countries. Figure 17, which is on page 24, has the prevalence rates for that same age group, 15 to 64 years, for cocaine. And Portugal is very close to the bottom post-decriminalization as compared to Eastern European countries. And in fact, some of the countries with the harshest criminalization schemes, like Great Britain and Estonia, have not just higher rates for cocaine, but five to six to seven times higher rates. And across the board, if you look at the number of deaths related to drugs in Portugal and compare the skyrocketing rates in the 1990s to what has happened to post-decriminalization, you find substantial improvements, just as a pure matter of empiricism, in virtually every one of these categories. And so I think that if you want to look at what the arguments were against decriminalization in Portugal and what they are in the United States anytime you raise the prospect. The strongest empirical evidence is that those predictions end up being untrue. And what decriminalization does is not only enable policymakers to reach the population in in a much healthier and, and more candid way, it actually enables these problems to be brought under control much more effectively than where criminalization Remains and, and I think once that assumption in our drug policy debate is gutted, which this evidence in the most rational sense does, that decriminalization leads to an explosion of usage rates, I think that is what can really transform drug policy debate in the United States from this sort of moral and, and irrational-driven discussion into something that is much more serious and substantive 
an adult. And, and I just hope that people begin to look at these questions based on evidence like this rather than on a sort of emotion-driven dialogue that we've had for decades in this country. NATO's charter says that an attack on one is an attack on all. The first time the agency ever had to act on that claim was September 11, 2001, against a stateless foe. But NATO has bigger problems. Cato Institute Vice President Ted Galen Carpenter, speaking at an April Capitol Hill briefing, said NATO no longer serves as a relevant or credible keeper of the peace. There are several problems with the alliance in its current form. And I'm going to describe them in order and then discuss them one by one. One is a lack of seriousness about a good many security issues, exemplified, I think, by NATO's, and I'm going to be charitable about this, stumbling performance in Afghanistan. A second problem is a lack of cohesion regarding key policy issues among members of the alliance. That is most evident with regard to policy toward Russia, but again, that's not the only place where there are increasing fissures in the ranks of the alliance. A third problem is that despite NATO's enlargement, if you take a look at many of the members that have been added, they are not even arguably serious military assets, and in fact, many of them carry a lot of dangerous strategic baggage. And then finally, and I think perhaps the most serious, an alarming decline in the military capabilities, the military spending levels, among NATO's traditional main European members. Let me take those one by one. The lack of seriousness, very evident with the Afghanistan mission. And this is a source of frustration with the U.S. military commanders. They have been reasonably diplomatic in public, including the current national security advisor for President Obama, General James Jones. But I can tell you privately, the military leadership on this side of the Atlantic is furious at many of the NATO allies. Yes, NATO invoked Article 5 immediately after the attacks of 9-11. Article 5, of course, is the provision proclaiming that an attack on one member is an attack on all. And NATO countries began to agree to send military units to Afghanistan. That all looked very good, and on a symbolic level, it was quite impressive. However, with the notable exceptions of Britain and Canada, partial exceptions of the Netherlands and a couple of other countries. Those military deployments have ranged from marginally useful to absolutely useless. Many of the governments have placed so many restrictions, so many caveats on their deployment, one wonders why they have even bothered sending troops. Some of the countries refuse to allow their troops to participate in night missions because those are dangerous. An even greater number refuse to station their troops in any area where, well, combat might take place and where the troops might actually prove useful. 
majority of the NATO governments participating in the Afghanistan mission seem to regard the primary functions of their troops as nation builders in uniform, engaging in some very interesting social engineering experiments in Afghanistan, what one a foreign policy critic once described as foreign policy as social work, but not playing any kind of meaningful role from a military standpoint. A number of NATO leaders have described the Afghanistan mission as the litmus test of NATO's relevance in the 21st century. If this truly is a test of NATO's relevance, NATO as an alliance is failing that test and failing rather spectacularly. Asserting the right to leave, to venture off and try something new is a right held dear by libertarians. But what happens when that something new is a new kind of government? The Seasteading Institute seeks to build self-sufficient deep-sea platforms that would empower individuals to break free of national governments and start their own societies. Patrick Friedman is its executive director. He spoke at the Cato Institute in April. All right, so this argument is already at a, a meta level because we're not talking about policies, about laws, but about the system that generates policies. But I'm a computer scientist. I have to be even more meta than that. I want to talk about the system for generating systems for generating policies. Or to be a little more concrete, the industry of government, the industry in which institutions compete. So government is just an industry. It has a bunch of firms. Why, is it, why does it do so poorly? Why is it inefficient? First, it has an insane barrier to entry. Countries ruthlessly protect their sovereignty over land, and there's no unclaimed land. Every rock in the world is owned by a country or apportioned by international agreement like Antarctica. And, which means that in order to try out a new government, you have to defeat some old one, which means that you have to win a war, an election, or revolution. Okay, if you think something like the operating system industry is uncompetitive, this is ridiculous. Like... I have an idea for a new way to make a new country run. And in order to accomplish it, I have to win a war, an election, or a revolution. I mean, first of all, business people, the people who I think would best design a new society and run a new society, they're not going to want to fight a war, risk their lives, get their, get their hands dirty. But it's just, it's a ridiculous barrier to entry to entering this industry. Okay, the second problem is there's enormous customer lock-in. Moving between countries is expensive and highly regulated. Again, to go to the operating systems industry, when all of your applications and all of your experiences with one operating system, it's hard to switch. Versus a website, anybody can just start at one website, go to some other website, it works pretty well. And we have barriers against emigration, barriers against immigration, just the expense of selling your house, finding a new house, finding a new job, it's terrible. So when you have an industry where it's hard for new companies to form, it's hard for customers to switch, of course you get an industry segmented into a bunch of local monopolies, right? Does this sound like government? Government is a geographically segmented monopoly. And what is the natural result of what kind of firms you're going to get? You're going to get firms that exploit their existing customer base instead of innovating and competing for new ones. Firms that act like bandits, not like salesmen. I mean, this industry is so badly structured that firms constantly steal from and occasionally even kill their customers, and they still stay in business. <laughs> this is a pretty low bar. And looking at things this way means we're not making a moral argument. We're not saying what's right, what's wrong. We're just saying 
It's an industry. It's not competitive. That's a problem. And it also clearly suggests solutions to make it more competitive. Now, what's a bit more of a leap is the degree to which these problems are connected with us having run out of frontier. So I'll read a quote from a kind of cheesy, surrealistic movie called Interstate 60 about a weird road trip. It's pretty obscure. Has anybody happened to have seen the movie Interstate 60? No, okay. About 100 years ago, Frederick Turner came up with a theory about the frontier. He said the frontier was a safety valve for civilization, a place for people to go to keep from going mad. So whenever there were folks who couldn't fit in with the way things were, nuts, malcontents, and extremists, they'd pack up and head for the frontier. That's how America got started. All the crackpots and troublemakers in Europe packed up and went to a frontier, which became the 13 colonies. When some people couldn't fit in with that, they moved farther west, which is why all of us nuts eventually ended up in California. But now we don't have any farther west to go. Turner died in 1932, so he wasn't around long enough to see what happened to the world when we ran out of frontier. Without a frontier, in order to experiment with a new technology for government, you have to fight the old one. The frontier was always a classic place where the slate was wiped clean. Now that we don't have one, it's kind of no surprise that we don't have much innovation in government. And it's notable that it's not that everything is, that you try out new things at the frontier and then they're just better there. Innovations made on the frontier can sweep backwards to the rest of the world. All right, so we have a big problem, one that's been around for a long time, the problem of bad government. We need a big solution, something clever and sneaky and different, which is why I think the answer is to open a new frontier on the ocean by homesteading the high seas. This may sound kind of strange, but thinking back to this analysis, which admittedly was originally designed in order to lead to this solution, but I still think it's somewhat true. How does homesteading the high seas help? Well, we're going to drastically cut the barrier to entry by opening a new frontier where small groups can form independent settlements. We want to make it so that any group of a couple hundred people, like everyone here and a few friends, could start their own country for the same price as buying houses in San Francisco. That's pretty expensive, but there's economies of scale that could bring it even below that. But that's not the weird part. This is the Empire State Building and the freedom of the seas, a cruise ship, to the same scale. So it's no exaggeration to say that the ocean lets things as big as skyscrapers move. Not move as an expensive, special, one-time thing. Cruise ships ply the seas on a regular basis, constantly. This feature of the ocean has had enormous impact on civilization. This is what's brought us globalization, global trade. But nobody seems to have thought before me, what happens if we build our cities this way? If we build our cities on the ocean out of modular units that can be rearranged, geographically flexible countries. It's a whole new paradigm where you'll be able to leave your country without leaving your house. If existing countries followed our model, then the country of Georgia could be a thousand miles away from Russia in a week when they started arguing. A thousand miles away in a week is not a made-up number. That's how fast our engineers tell us a big floating city could move. Israel and Palestine wouldn't have to be neighbors. After they fought about how to divide up the promised land, probably blew up a bunch of it in the process, but then they could take what pieces were left and go their own way. Cato could leave D.C. and take the Hayek Auditorium with it. Any country who, whose laws were too oppressive would find the best and brightest and their factories and their homes melting away to grace some friendlier land. Now, to some degree, this already happens on land. Capital moves to where it can get the best terms. I mean, it's building new factories, not moving old ones, but it's the same idea. And as a result you can see that the tax rates on capital, corporate tax rates, are much lower than the tax rates on labor. If we can make labor more mobile, 
then countries will have to compete for it more, and that'll get us better terms. Again, this is not a new idea. The United States was built on the idea of federalism, on competition between states. Arnold says we need 250 states. Seasteading is extreme federalism. Numerous polls show that Americans want to reduce our military presence abroad. Why haven't we done so? Chris Preble, director of foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute, explains in his new book, The Power Problem. He discussed the book at an April Cato Policy Forum. I want to tell a few stories about this book, but as it happened, I was in, um, I was in New York a couple weeks ago, New York City, with uh, my family on a family vacation, and we went to the Children's Museum of Manhattan. This is the one place where the kids could touch anything they wanted, and we didn't have to tell them, stop touching things. And uh, there's a wonderful exhibit there on the uh, ancient Greeks, based on, based largely on the Odyssey. So there's a Trojan horse, and there's you go through the Scylla and Charybdis, and uh, you uh, whack an ogre, and all these other things. My son, Alex, to whom this book is dedicated, uh, along with my daughter, Caitlin, he was really taken by this, and as a historian, especially one who is interested in ancient history, I'm always encouraged when my son uh, shows an interest in history, although I don't want him to be too interested in it. You know, we take for granted how much these ancient stories, how much relevance they still have. I mean, after all, think about the word Odyssey. Odyssey means a, a great journey, or we hear of computer viruses that are Trojan horses, or you know, a person who makes gloomy predictions about the future to be ignored. That's a Cassandra. We know what these words are because we know the stories, even if maybe we haven't read the Odyssey and certainly not in uh, the ancient Greek. Um, there's another word that I like to use to describe our current foreign policy. That's Sisyphean meaning endlessly laborious or futile. That's how uh, Webster's defines it. And that is the word that I use to describe our foreign policies over the last two decades, roughly. But you know, I'm not alone. And it's interesting that even many of the advocates of our current strategy admit that this strategy is costly, difficult, and might ultimately prove futile. The most recent example of this I saw a couple of weeks ago in the Washington Post, Jim Hoagland, he was speaking about the role the United States was going to play in the war within Islam. And he said, perhaps all we can accomplish is to buy time for mainstream Islamic forces in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and elsewhere to organize an effective response to the existential threat in their midst. That will be a costly and essentially thankless task for the United States, unquote. Again, an advocate of our current strategy. Another advocate of our current strategy, Robert Kaplan, predicted that the American brand of imperialism might be particularly short-lived because it was a fomenter of dynamic change. A liberal empire like the United States was likely to create the conditions for its own demise. Also not a real strong selling point from my perspective. My personal favorite, however, which I've quoted often, is Robert Kagan from of Paradise and Power. And he says, the United States does act as an international sheriff, self-appointed perhaps, but widely welcome nonetheless, trying to enforce some peace and justice in what Americans see as a lawless world where outlaws need to be deterred or destroyed, often through the muzzle of a gun. Europe, by this Wild West analogy, is more like the saloon keeper. Outlaws shoot sheriffs not saloon keepers. Well, I love this. I love this analogy. It's just wonderful for me because, not, well, first of all, it's really badly flawed. It's based on this vision of the Wild West from Hollywood, right? And the enduring archetype is Gary Cooper at high noon. Here's the heroic sheriff standing out there and the sniveling, cowardly townspeople hiding somewhere 
you know, this is no more the reality of the Wild West than Mel Brooks blazing saddles, with all due respect. I mean, the people in the Western territories in the 19th century, they were extremely autonomous, highly capable, independent people. When the long arm of the law couldn't reach where they were, which was much of the time, they took matters in their own hands. And we have a wonderful example of this when the James Younger gang, Jesse James and his brothers and Younger, they attempted to rob the First National Bank in Northfield, Minnesota in September 1876, and the townspeople cut them to pieces. So, you know, we have a different model for the Wild West that is not what Bob Kagan would have you believe. But it's not just flawed because it's historically inaccurate. It's also curious if it's intended to increase public support for this mission. I mean, let's think about this. We are playing this role of embattled sheriff. We spend hundreds of billions of dollars every year providing security so that others don't have to. We take risks, including the chance of being shot by outlaws, but we supposedly expect nothing in return. In fact, a lot of times you hear people describe our strategy and we measure the success or failure of our efforts not by how well we are doing, but rather by how others are doing. And so I ask, why, why have we borne such costs and incurred such risks so that others may benefit from our largesse? Well, here's why I return to Sisyphus and the ancients, or we also could re use Goliath. You know, Goliath, after all, he was strong and enormously powerful. That's why he was the most feared of the Philistines. But, of course, his great strength was both a blessing and a curse. He was, of course, brought down by David Stone. But I wonder if our situation is not more akin to Sisyphus. The man condemned to roll an enormous rock up a mountain. And when the rock came to the summit, it would roll back down into the valley, and he'd begin this process anew for eternity. Well, I had to go back and check my story a little bit because, of course, people do know this story. We know about Sisyphus, but they don't really know, I think many people don't know, why is it the gods imposed this horrible punishment on Sisyphus? What did he do? It was so horrible. Well, it turns out he was a crafty man and... Um, he tricked Persephone, the queen of the underworld, into allowing him to return to the world of the living. And when the gods figured this out, they retrieved him to Hades, and they were not content to merely retrieve him there, but they punished him. They figured the, the worst form of comeuppance for a crafty man like Sisyphus would be to perform an impossible task for eternity. So I wonder, several millennia from now, when historians take their children to the Children's Museum of wherever, and they're looking back on this period, and they see the United States standing bestride the world like a colossus, bearing the burdens of global hegemony on our shoulders, only to have them come crashing down on our heads over and over again. And these people will ask, what heinous crime did these Americans perpetrate on humanity? Who forced this costly, thankless, and likely impossible role upon the United States? Well, of course, I'm being a little too cute here. No one forced this on us. We took it on ourselves. We were not the victim of some accident of fate or science. Michael Mandelbaum calls American hegemony a gift to the world for which we are not paid. But you know, most people look upon this as an odd phenomenon, that we would retain this much power after the fall of the Soviet Union, two decades hence now, and they tend to look on this as though they're observing the formation of galaxies on the edge of the universe or some asteroid crashing into a planet off of Jupiter or something. It's though it was some odd phenomenon that we have no control over. But again, we chose this. This is not a random incident. This is an entire body of thought.
you know, the basic outlines of our grand strategy trace back to 1992 when aides to then Secretary Richard Cheney, Secretary of Defense Richard Cheney, they sketched out the plans known as the Defense Planning Guidance. And the goal of U.S. foreign policy, it said, was to prevent the reemergence of a new rival capable of challenging U.S. power in any vital area, including Western Europe, Asia, or the territory of the former Soviet Union. To accomplish this task, the United States would retain preponderant military power, not merely to deter attacks against the United States, but also to deter potential competitors from even aspiring to a larger regional or global role. And since then, American hegemony, unipolarity, whatever you want to call it, has had many defenders. Charles Krauthammer dismissed the mere suggestion that the United States would seek to share the burdens of global governance as merely stupid. That's a direct quote, merely stupid. Just as the defense planning guidance could conceive of no alternative, no alternative, no possible alternative to U.S. primacy, he dismissed the alternatives to global predominance as utterly impractical and stupid. My other personal favorite is Bob Kagan again, writing with William Crystal in 1996, who declared that American hegemony is the only reliable defense against a breakdown of peace and international order. The only reliable defense. So we have chosen this posture and taken on these burdens, or more accurately, our political class has chosen these burdens for the rest of us, out of fear the world will collapse into chaos were it not for the United States standing in this role, it, presuming that if we were to adopt a more restrained posture, everything would come crashing down. There are so many examples of this. One of my personal favorites is Madeleine Albright's assertion that we see farther, we stand tall and we see further than other countries into the future, and we see the danger to us all. That's a pretty good encapsulation of that. Another, it's just, you know, we see these demographic trends fighting over resources and whatnot, and, and we think that every single potential conflict, even an internal conflict, is likely to, to spiral out of control. My argument in this book, and it's an argument that I've been making for six years here at Cato, and it's an argument that, frankly, you know, I couldn't make it other institutions in this town or in this country, and it's a place like Cato that's been so incredibly supportive of my work. This fear of global chaos ensuing if the United States were to adopt a more normal role for a country of our size and status is largely overblown, right? I mean, failed states and civil wars rarely represent security threats to the United States. A civil war in Mexico? Yeah, maybe. Such conditions often, however, represent threats to other countries that should, in a normal world, be expected to deal with these crises long before they engulf the planet. In fact, there is little reason to believe that this world will descend into chaos because, after all, just as our government is chiefly concerned about providing security for our citizens, other governments are presumably interested in the same thing. And because... Local chaos, much less global chaos, is not in their interest. We should expect them to play a larger role. And to the extent that they do not, I think it is largely by design, and I think that was extraordinarily short-sighted. Just to cite some statistics, if you don't believe me that it actually hasn't worked, to cite some statistics, we were going to dissuade potential competitors from seeking to challenge us. World military spending has increased by, uh, U.S. military spending, excuse me, over the last uh, 10 years has increased by about, not quite two-thirds, about 66% since 1998. 1998 was the inflection point. During the same period, inflation-adjusted expenditures worldwide, excluding the United States, grew by half as much, 33%. Just two countries, however, Russia and China, represented the bulk of those increases. Russian military spending has grown about two and a half times 
since 1998, and uh, China's spending has roughly tripled. But what about the rest of the world? Because that's the most important part. U.S. allies have not kept pace. Japanese military expenditures have basically remained flat and actually have declined a little bit since 2001. Germany's defense budget is down about a little bit over 8% over the last 10 years. France has increased its defense budget modestly. When you look at all the NATO countries combined and exclude U.S. expenditures, no country in NATO spends more than 3% of GDP on defense, and the average is 1.74%. So the aim of our policies was to dissuade potential competitors in the hopes of challenging us to deter rivals. It hasn't worked out that way, at least not in the way that I think we would think advanced our security. It has not discouraged China and Russia from buying more weapons, investing in new technologies, and courting potential allies. But it has, on the other hand, increased the dependency and the reliance of our allies. They have grown weaker in the process, and by their weakness, they impose additional costs and burdens on us. So, not surprisingly, I guess, I hope, I propose a different strategy. My strategy proceeds from a particular view of U.S. power that I think is pretty close to the polar opposite of what prevails here in this city, with a few exceptions, including some of the folks up here on the stage with me a little bit. Most people in Washington, many, see U.S. power as an unadulterated good. It's beneficial for Americans and for the world, everyone. essentially. And if there are problems, it's more a function of the style in which power is exercised, not that it is exercised. So so we need to dress it up. We need to tie it to multilateral institutions. We need to exercise our power with a smile on our face, things like that. But I think that's false. I think that it is not simply a marketing problem, that it is a fundamental problem related to U.S. power. I don't think that we need a single hegemon to police the world for the reasons I mapped out. Another reason that you hear about why we need a hegemon is to ensure that the global uh, trading order functions properly. And I think that's also false. I mean, the international economy is a lot more resilient than the uh, advocates of benevolent global hegemony imagine. I mean, the United States, yeah, we're one of many parties that benefit from a global trading order, but we're not certainly the only ones. And it would be appropriate for us to continue to contribute, but only relative to our benefits. There are many other countries that benefit, and they are not paying, and we should be looking to distribute those burdens. Now, I'll close with this, because I don't want to sound naive or overly optimistic, and I don't think I am, because it will be very difficult to make this transition. There will be a lot of resistance for the United States to draw back, because First and foremost, I'm arguing that other countries will have to do more. And from their perspective, for many countries, it is in their interest to be able to shed and shift some of the burdens of defense onto American taxpayers than bearing the burdens themselves. So my argument ultimately rests on us driving change, the American people driving change, not the change being forced on us from the outside which is a little different, of course, from traditional realist theory, I would admit, okay? Because for a long time, we've predicted that there would be balancing against us. We haven't seen a lot of that, some not really hard balancing. This is my argument that this must be driven internally by the United States. Not necessarily, and I believe that a world that has multiple centers of power and has regional powers that are capable of dealing with problems in their respective regions before they become global challenges, I believe that would be a better world order. I believe that to be true, and I believe that we can achieve that. I freely concede that the transition from point A to point B might be difficult and risky. So ultimately, we have to choose this because it is in our interest, 
not because it is in some global interest. Now, the American people do want change, and one of the things I talk about in this book is that the change they want isn't necessarily an improvement, and, this, and, I, and I think we should be very, very honest about this, because there is this hostility to, to trade. There is some hostility to international engagement of a certain variety. My argument is that people believe, that some people believe the only way you can truly be engaged is to be dominant over the planet, and that's extraordinarily costly and risky and, and difficult, and my argument is that you do not need to be that. In fact, that our military dominance gets in the way of the kind of global engagement that would be uh, quite beneficial to us. It's incumbent upon those of us who believe passionately in global engagement, who believe in the benefits of trade, who believe that what makes us strong as a society is our openness and our liberty and our tolerance, and we must convince our fellow Americans that we can and should be globally engaged, but not at the same time be bearing all of the burdens of the world on our shoulders. So let me close uh, with a few passages, a few of the final passages from my book. Our challenge and it is a challenge that other great nations have faced, is to match our power to our purpose, to see our power as a means to an end, and to shape our power to suit those ends. We should possess no more than we need, and we should husband what we have with extreme prejudice. True wisdom comes in controlling power, and that begins with an appreciation for what power does and what it does not do. It also requires an extraordinary degree of discipline, as the Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu said, he who controls others may be powerful, but he who has mastered himself is mightier still. More than two millennia later, and half a world away, Thomas Jefferson voiced similar sentiments with respect not to one person, but to the nation that he helped establish. It was the summer of 1815, not long after the United States had prevailed over the British in the War of 1812, never again would foreign troops set foot on U.S. soil, and if Jefferson sensed immense uh, a measure of triumphalism in the air, he hoped it wouldn't go to everyone's head. He predicted that one day, in the not-so-distant future, Americans, quote, may shake a rod over the heads of all, which may make the stoutest of them tremble. But I hope our wisdom will grow with our power and teach us that the less we use our power, the greater it will be. That we may shake a rod and make the world tremble is no longer in dispute. But whether we have the wisdom to control our power remains very much an open question. I hope that we do. Some military power is necessary. Too much is a problem. It's a problem that we alone can solve if only we choose to do so. Thank you. One of Cato's best-selling books from the past year is now available in paperback. The Cult of the Presidency, America's Dangerous Devotion to Executive Power, by Cato Vice President Gene Healy, chronicles our growing dependence on the executive branch as a means to cure all the nation's ills. It was called the year's most pertinent and sobering public affairs book by George Will and is available at CatoStore.org as well as bookstores nationwide. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.